This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Page 335, so he explained that the advantage, another advantage of the practical mitzvot or the physical mitzvot is that it draws godliness down into this world and that's the ultimate purpose versus prayer is elevation. And he said there's two types of elevation. There is an elevation where the vessel is refined and therefore it's elevated meaning it could absorb a greater light and then there is an elevation which the the light escapes the vessel the vessel can no longer contain the light and the light leaves the vessel and that's not a positive thing unless it serves as a preparation for the future ascent for example when you go to sleep When you go to sleep, your soul leaves the body. In a sense, it's a 60th of death. Your consciousness, you're out cold, and your soul goes to heaven to rejuvenate, refresh. So, yes, it's an ascent where the light, the energy, leaves the vessel, rises up above the vessel, transcends the vessel, leaves the vessel behind, but it's just temporary. The whole point is, and then you wake up in the morning, refreshed. The soul returns to the body, restored, refreshed, rejuvenated. Then it's a positive. As long as it's a preparation, as long as it's there, when you sleep, the cobwebs clear out, your brain is fresh, and then you're able, now you're able to receive, now you're able to understand, you're able to receive the light. So the purpose, the ultimate purpose of the ascent, it's only positive as long as it leads to a descent, which is the ultimate goal. That's why death is such a tragedy. The person leaves the body, the soul leaves the body. Yes, it's an ascent, but you rise above the vessel can no longer contain the light, and the light, the energy just rises above and transcends. But the whole pur- since the whole point and the whole purpose is the descent. You know, you say the soul should have an elevation, but maybe the soul should have a descent, not an elevation. (laughs) Yes, it should have an elevation, but as long as it ultimately leads to the descent. That's why for Jews, death is temporary. The ultimate, and the 13th, and the ultimate principle of Jewish faith is that the soul will return to the body. That the ascent is temporary. Just like sleep is temporary and then you wake up refreshed. So too, 
death is temporary. Talmud tells the story that someone was conversing with one of the Talmudic rabbis. He was under the ground and they had a conversation. He says, I'm just lying here. I'm waiting for the resurrection. But I'm <laughs> it's temporary. You know, temporary is measured in, in, in different terms, but it's temporary. You know, there was a, uh, a miser. He never gave a penny in his life to charity. Stingy is for himself and his family. Money was never an issue, but God forbid to spare a nickel, a dime, even a penny to help someone else. Out of the question. No one helped me when I become rich. I'm not, I'm not going to help anyone. When it came time to die, and he had to buy a plot, so the city decided to charge him, usually a plot cost or whatever, 5000 6000 They're going to charge him $600,000 for the plot. What's this? Is it just because um, you want to get back at me? Revenge? I was stingy. I never gave, contributed. I never gave to anything. Any of the Misha Bedoth never gave a dime. But uh, still, the rabbi explained, no. It's very simple. It says if a person is very stingy and never gives any tzedakah, he won't merit the resurrection. He says, everyone else we bury in town, it's temporary, you know. We bury them, but it's temporary. Mashiach will come and be followed by the resurrection. So they're just renting a space, but for you, it's forever. (laughs) That's that's, that's expensive. (laughs) Every ascent is only positive as long as ultimately it will lead to to a descent. Because it's part of the purification process. Part of the purification is, is, is death. So it's, only, it's all leading to the ultimate when the world will merit to see the arrival and the coming of Mashiach, our righteous one, and ultimate, ultimately with the resurrection of the dead. So therefore, since the whole purpose is this world, the physical, drawing Hashem down into this world, therefore, Moshe pleaded and begged to be allowed to enter into the promised land to Israel because only there could he do the mitzvah could he draw Hashem down even though he had the most intense uh, revelations of godliness and the most intense feelings for godliness and love and ecstasy but all of that is nothing because that's all about an ascent it's all about rising above transcending yourself but the ultimate goal and the ultimate purpose and the ultimate divine purpose is to draw Hashem down into this world. That's only through the mitzvah. And also when you learn and study the laws, how to do the mitzvah, all the laws, all the halachic laws, all the technical laws, the mechanical laws, how to do the mitzvah, you're dealing with the physical, it's drawing Hashem down into this world. That's where we left off. Now he's going to ask the question, page 335, let us understand but let us understand how an Ezra, which derives from the 288 sparks that have not yet been purified, since this physical fruit derives its life force from Fripa Nova, it contains some element of the 288 sparks of Tohu, which have not yet been elevated to divinity. And so too, the parchment scroll of the Tefillin, upon which the Torah passages are inscribed, can elicit light into the vessels of Zuan, of Tzilut, 
that have already been purified and rectified through the purifying name Ma, so that they are a state of God. So how is it possible to draw down godliness, to achieve such an intense revelation of godliness, a new light, a new revelation into the vessels, the vessels of the world of emanation, like we learned earlier that the the vessels expand and the vessels now are able to receive the tremendous light of the world of chaos. So how is it possible by doing a mitzvah with a physical object, which the physical object is coarse, crass, before you do the mitzvah with it. It's a physical object. It has, it comes from klippa, it comes from the shell. So how is it possible that by doing a mitzvah with this physical object, you're going to draw down the light, and such an intense light. You're going to add to uh, the world of Atsilas, which is purely godly, pure godliness. So how, by doing something physical, do you have such an effect that you draw down such great light into the world of emanation? That's the question. The analogy for this is the process of sowing and planting. The seed stimulates the power of growth within the soil. This is the mo- one of the most, we learned in one of the earlier letters, this is one of the most astonishing it's beyond miracle. We take it for granted, but if you think about it, the act of growing, planting, sowing, and growing is the most astonishing thing. Think about it. You, put, you plant a seed into the ground, one seed. The seed rots. And out of this seed, you grow a whole stalk of wheat, which has hundreds of thousands of seeds. How do you get from one tiny seed all this, these so many seeds and this huge stalk of grain? A seed which is tasteless and then, and especially, how do you get from one seed a lush tree? Tree which bears fruit-bearing tree, delicious fruits, full of taste, so colorful. And this tree contains thousands of seeds in the fruits. From one little seed, it makes no sense. There's no connection. Everyone takes it for granted. But if you think about it, a Jew thinks about it and is astounded, astonished. It's a miracle of creation. It's not just a miracle. It's the miracle of creation. How do you get from here to there? From nothing, it's almost from nothing to something. Something out of nothing. From one seed. Tasteless, tiny little seed. And even that seed disintegrates and rots. And from this seed, you're going to get this beautiful tree. So what's the connection? How, how do you get from this seed? So the answer is that you, it's not the seed that causes the growth. It's the divine energy. God, the divine energy that at the beginning of creation created everything and then stopped creating anything new. But within the earth, that divine energy that functioned and operated at the beginning of creation, that divine energy remains till today and continues to create. We call it renewable, renewable energy, renewable. You can constantly grow and regrow and grow again. It's infinite, inexhaustible. You have to tend tend to the earth. You have to make sure you don't uh, abuse the earth. You have to do it wisely. But the potential to grow is renewable. It's infinite. So it's the divine energy. In other words, the act of creation never stopped. 
when it comes to the earth. You plant a seed on your table and water it, and the sun is shining, <laughs> nothing is going to happen. <laughs> you come back later, you still have a seed. On a wet table. But if you plant it in the earth, you plant it in the ground, it never ceases to amaze, it never ceases, it grows. It's a miracle. It's a, beyond miracles. It's, it's an astounding, astonishing thing. So it's the divine energy within the earth. Hashem says the earth should grow in the third day of creation. And that energy is active. And whenever you, you, you sow the ground, it grows. So what's the purpose of the seed? What does the seed accomplish? The seed is nothing in this. What role does the seed play? Not a player. The seed, you plant one seed, it rots into the ground, so it disintegrates into nothing. So it's the power of the earth. So the, the purpose of the seed is the seed arouses the triggers, the power within the earth to create. All it is is a trigger, and it directs the power of the earth to create whatever the seed is. I'm going to plant a tomato seed, I'm not going to end up with an apple. The power in the earth to create has the power to create apples and the power to create plums and peaches, but it's going to create a tomato, because that's the tomato seed that I planted. So it triggers, it evokes a response, a response that, that, that's focused going to create, but it's going to create whatever the seed is. Why does the seed have the power to create, to trigger such a response? What's the connection between the seed and this divine ability to create, miraculous divine ability to create? There's no connection. The divine ability to create, you can't touch it. It has no taste. It has no smell. It has no color, and it has the ability to create anything. Multiple, almost infinite variety of growth of things that grow, and fruits and vegetables and spices. Whatever you plant, it can grow. So what's the connection between this physical, tiny, bitter, tasteless little seed and the ability, the divine ability to grow? How can this trigger? The answer is very simple. Because the seed was also created by the ability, the divine ability to grow. This is what gave birth to the seed. The seed came from that. So it contains, it's almost like a DNA, it contains within it. It contains within it a piece, a reflection of of that divine ability to make grow. So therefore it's able to trigger it. Even though externally, superficially, you don't see the connection between this physical little, tiny little seed and this almost infinite ability, divine ability to create and renew and regenerate. But contained within the seed, since the seed also came from the ground, came from that. So it contains within it a little seed, a little potential, and it's enough to trigger when you plant the seed. And once the seed merges with the earth, once the seed rots, when the seed remains a seed, nothing will happen. It's when the seed rots and merges with the earth, then it triggers, it unleashes this powerful reaction. It triggers a powerful reaction where it's almost, almost it's not commensurate. 
There's almost no connection between the physical seed and the reaction. It's, it's, it's beyond. For one seed, I end up with this lush tree. But it's enough. Because there is some resemblance and the, and the minutest level, that's enough to trigger. To trigger. So that's the parable. With this parable, we can understand, we'll answer the question, how is it possible that through the physical mitzvah it can trigger such a powerful response? The actual growth is not from the seed, but from the power of growth as explained above. The seed merely serves as an arousal from below, stimulating the particular aspect of the power of growth that finds expression within it. After the seed decomposes, this particular power becomes incorporated within this universal power of growth, that is found in the ground. It then stimulates the power of growth within the earth to produce the same sort of fruit tree as a seed that was implanted. The essence of the power of growth is the divine decree, quote, let the earth sprout forth, end quote, which is the ultimate source of the vegetative growth. The God-given ability of the seed rouse the power of the of growth acts through the elevation of Mayan Nikuvin to its source. The seed, whose source is within the power of growth, serves as an arousal from below, from the recipient below to the benefactor. Although the seed that is planted can in no way compare to the power of growth, it can nonetheless arouse the power of this is its source. It doesn't have the power to grow, but it does have that power to arouse, to awaken, to trigger because it is the source, so it, ha- it reflects it in some way, and therefore it could stir this powerful, evoke this powerful response. So this is the parable, and now he comes to the, uh, we learned this. In this manner, the parchment of the feeling and the atrog of the force species arouse unto the loftiest of levels. This is the name Sag, which precedes and transcends the shattering of the vessels, and which is the very essence of the light of Adam Kadmon. As explained above, Adam Kadmon is the first research of thought of the infinite light as it encompasses all of creation. Here is to be found the essence of the visage and not merely a irradiation. Thus, the divine name Sag relates to the essence of the illumination of Adam Kadmon. We learned earlier, Adam Kadman is the, the general, the whole, which is greater than the sum total of its parts. The whole frame of reference of the universe, where it's all encompassed as one, one point. And the name Sag, which is, as we learned in great detail in the previous classes, how you spell out Hashem's name, the letters, Yudke Vavke. So it's... Uh, um, hey, and um, hey Yud, hey Yud, which is 30, and Yud, this is 20, that's 50, and Vav Aleph Vav, which is 13, equals 30, uh, 63. So this is the world of chaos. So the name Sag comes from the essence of, of primordial man versus the world of emanation is just an illumination. And yes, the name, the name Sag from the world of chaos, the sparks fell and ended up in the physical, coarse, crass form, which is our world. But here we have the very essence versus in the world of 
of mending, which is the divine world, there you just have the illumination, which refers to in the Kabbalah's the light that comes out of the uh, forehead, which is there's a there's a barrier between what's on the inside and the outside. There's the skull. You just see a light. You just see a light shining, you know, but it's just uh, an illumination versus the mouth, the ears, the nose, which is connected to the inside. So the, um, the world of sag is more internal, comes from the inside, versus the world of, of, of mending is just external on the surface. It's the light that comes through the barrier and um, from, the, from uh, the forehead, which is external. So yes, it's, it's sublime and divine and spiritual and godly versus the world of chaos ends up being very messy and coming into a very physical, physical form. But, but this is rooted in the world of Sag, which is rooted on the inside, which is rooted in the essence of, of the primordial man. And that's why the light is so intense. That's why the light is so powerful. The energy is so powerful. Because it comes from, comes from within. Versus the world of, of mending, the light is diminished. It's external. The vessels are huge and the light is small and the vessels could contain the light. And that's why there's no shattering. There's no disturbance. There's no shattering. Versus the lights of chaos, intense lights, powerful lights, small vessels which leads to a disturbance, break, break, breakdown, chaos, uh, which leads to the sparks falling into the physical world, into the esring, into all the physical items and objects of this world. So, as he says, when we do a mitzvah with this physical object, since this physical object in relation to its source is like the seed, the physical seed in relation to its source, this powerful divine energy that's within the earth, that Hashem left in the earth. It's the only thing of part of creation which Hashem never stopped. Usually creation ended. After six days of creation, Hashem stopped creating. But the, cre- but the power of the earth to create, that never left. Just like day one of creation, it continues to create, it continues to regenerate. It hasn't changed. So the relationship between the seed and this powerful divine energy, you can't see this relationship. What's the connection? This is a physical, tiny, bitter little seed, and this is this immense, intense, infinite capacity to create and regenerate. And yet it's related, it's connected. Because it comes, the seed comes from that power of, of regeneration. Therefore, it, ha- it has a little of it, therefore, it has the power to trigger it. So, too, the physical esrog and the physical object with which we do the mitzvah. And the tefillin, the, the leather hide, which we, we, we write the tefillin, and all the physical items of all the mitzvot, since where do they come from? What's their root? Their root ultimately is from the world of chaos, which, which is greater than the world of mending. And even though you don't see the ref- connection, this is like, this, it's like the relationship of the tiny seed to this divine ability to regenerate, but, but it comes from there. And therefore, it has the power when you do a mitzvah with a physical object. 
You're doing something godly, you're doing something divine with the esrog, you're shaking the esrog in the lulav, you're putting on the tefillin, you're doing a mitzvah. It has the ability to trigger and to evoke this powerful response, these powerful lights, powerful divine energies, powerful divine revelation, and draw it down into the world of mending. So the world of mending receives a whole new divine revelation which can never do on its own. It's only by us, physically, in this world, in the world of action, doing the mitzvah, we have the power to trigger this powerful response. You know, maybe today we can appreciate a little more. Just another a modern analogy. You know, the, the, the NASA scientist sit, sitting in Houston, pressing a button, <laughs> and something happened millions of miles away. You know, the satellite does this, and the rocket ship does that. What's the connection? I'm touching a button here, and, 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 and things are happening so far away. I don't see the connection. There was a little button I pressed. What, what did I do? I put on the tillip. I gave a penny to Tzedakah. What did I do already? I, I, I shook the lulav and that's it. That's it. And, and you know what happens as a result? This triggered this monumental response, an earthquake, a volcano. You know what happened? This intense revelation. Sparks are flying. This is uh, the 4th of July. Fireworks. What, what did I do? I, I, I did nothing. Well, it's like the seed. You think you did nothing. You just planted a seed. What did I do? What happened? <laughs> you know what happened? This From this little seed... You'll come back a few years later, you'll see this lush tree. And that one little act. I buried the seed and I planted it and that's it. Not merely a reflection as in the name, Ma, which issues from forehead. All this is accomplished through the actual performance of the commandments of the Tefillin and the Etro. Similarly, the study and careful examination of their laws, the laws regulating these mitzvahs. So just like by physically doing the mitzvah, we arouse and trigger and awaken this powerful response, so too, by studying and, and examining the laws, learning in the Torah about how to do the mitzvah, to physically do the mitzvah, also arouses this tremendous, tremendous response. If you learn Torah, it's as, if, it's as if you're doing the mitzvah. So it also has um, an impact. It's not a substitute for doing it. You can't just learn it. The main thing is the doing, the action. But also, in being engaged in the nitty-gritty and the halachas, and knowing all how to do the mitzvah, knowing it precisely, and knowing exactly where, where Hashem wants us to do the mitzvah, and you're dealing with the physical, you're learning about the physical, you're learning about the esrog, you're learning about the tefillin, you're learning about all the physical mitzvah, has also triggers this response. It's not commensurate to your activity. Just like planting a seed, it's not commensurate to the to the outcome. The outcome is not commensurate to the, the activity. So it seemingly is not commensurate to what I'm doing and the tremendous divine response that it's triggered. Arouses the Hofma Dinadat of the tense uh, Sefirot of the vessel Zoom and so upward to the greatest heights including Hohmah Binada of the inner 
dimension of the Adam Kadmon issuing through the eyes? Of Adam Kadmon. Eyes signifying sight that denote an inner and essential level of divinity, unlike the external aspect denoted by Farad. In summary, practical mitzvah performed with physical objects aroused their source unto the loftiest of levels, unto the divine name Sad, the level that transcends the breaking of the vessels. This is also true with regard to studying the laws of these mitzvot. Study likewise affects an elevation to this lofty level for the study of a mitzvah is likened to its actual performance. What, however, happens when one studies the laws of prohibitory commands? One cannot say that this study too is regarded as if to perform them, particularly so with regard to those instances that do not occur in practice at all. But with regard to those that can occur, we at least say that if one remains passive and does not transgress, he is rewarded as if he had performed a positive command. However, when the relevant opportunity does not occur at all, this obviously does not apply. Yet despite all this, it was stated above that one should study the laws to an even greater extent than one studies the order of the Tashimut, even though a study of the latter leads to a love and fear of Hashem. Now the Rebbe now addresses this issue, explaining that there is a certain aspect of Torah study that is common to both positive and negative commandments. Simply studying a subject, even if it has no practical application, binds the individual to supernal wisdom inasmuch as this is the source from which all the detailed laws emanate. Now he's going to start explaining and extolling the virtue of studying Torah. Why studying Torah, specifically studying the halachot, are unique and, and godly. The first part of the letter, he started out the uniqueness and what's so special about prayer. Power of prayer, how it's unique. There's nothing like prayer. The middle part of the letter, he extolled the virtue of action, of need. Pointing out many different many different angles, how the deed is essential, the action is what matters most, it's the mitzvah, it's the physical, it's the learning of the halacha. And now he is starting to explain what's unique about studying Torah, what's so special about the act of studying Torah, studying the, uh, all aspects of Torah. Not only when you're studying Torah that's practical, how to do the mitzvah, or studying things that are relevant in this world. But even when we study Torah, we study about things that never happen, never will happen, they're so far-fetched, so abstract, so theoretical. What's the relevance to my life? It's not like I'm learning about something that's practical, that's relevant. It's completely, completely not relevant now. When you study the parts of the Torah, the prohibitions, which is the majority of the 365 prohibitions versus 248 dues, so you can also say that you're studying, uh, it's a mitzvah. Because it says if a person is tempted to sin and he doesn't sin, he fulfilled a mitzvah. A thief who doesn't have the opportunity to steal thinks that he's honest. <laughs> that's not... That's not honesty. Honesty means you have the opportunity to steal, you're tempted to steal, 
You could steal. You could get away with it. But you choose not to. Why? Because Hashem says, thou shalt not steal. It's an inner discipline that just holds you back. It's just, I'm not, I'm not a Nebuchadnezzar. I could do. I'm not like innocent, pure. I, I, could, I could, but I choose not to. Like Yaakov. Yaakov was no uh, pushover when he had to. He knew how to deceive his brother. He can play his game and out, outwit his brother. But he chose to be straight and narrow, follow the straight and narrow path and do the right thing. Not because he didn't have any option. He was like a simpleton. So if a person has the opportunity to sin and doesn't sin, it's, it's a mitzvah. But when you learn laws and you learn about laws that are completely irrelevant to them, not even practical, can't happen. We're learning now the, the whole Seder of Zavah, of Kachim. Unfortunately, there's no temples and none of these laws apply today. And you're spending hours upon hours, a chunk of your life learning about things that are completely irrelevant to your life. What's the advantage of that? What, what, are, you, what are you accomplishing with? And he's going to explain what's so special about learning Torah, any part of Torah, any aspect of Torah, relevant, not relevant, current, not current. Just the act of Torah itself is something so powerful and accomplishes something so special. And it draws Hashem down into this world in such a special way. In a way, even more so than mitzvot. Because mitzvot you can only draw down by mitzvot that are relevant and practical. But with Torah, anything that you learn in Torah has the power to draw Hashem down. Even the most abstract subject that seemingly has no relevance, no current relevance in my real life, in my practical life. And that's what he's going to explain here. All the foregoing, in other words, as to how through observing the practical mitzvah and studying their laws, one attains to the divine name, Sad, that transcends the breaking of the vessels, concerns positive commandments, but not, it would seem, the study of particulars of the prohibition. When you do a practical mitzvah, you're learning how to do the mitzvah, so you can say it's, it's the same, the equivalent of doing the mitzvah. I'm learning about something practical, I'm learning. But the prohibitions, why studying about the prohibitions doesn't have the unique quality of a mitzvah. It's just information. But I'm not doing anything. There's no action involved. When I'm studying Torah, how to do the action, it's so it's connected to the action. But when I'm learning about how not to do something, not to violate a prohibition, so I'm not doing anything. So what's the connection, the studying of, of the Torah, of that Torah, what's, what connections I have to the mitzvah? Particularly, particularly those that do not occur in practice at all. For in these cases, we cannot even state that if one remains passive and does not transgress, he is rewarded as if he had performed a positive commitment. So it's as if he did a mitzvah. Doing, keeping a prohibition is also a mitzvah. Keeping a prohibition, if you're tempted to sin and you don't sin, you're also keeping the mitzvah. So when you're learning about how not to violate a prohibition, it's also a mitzvah. And it's practical. You, you refrain from sinning. But how about those mitzvot that are not relevant today? 
for example, the detailed laws of Pigula and the like, which presently have no practical application. Why should these laws, too, be studied extensively? And in fact, even more than one studies the order of Ishtal Shalut, which can rouse one to a love and awe of Hashem. So why should one spend most of his time studying the revealed part of the Torah and studying those parts of the Torah? The order of Kachim that has no relevance today, unfortunately, that are totally not practical. How could that be superior than studying? I should study Hasidus all day. Study about godliness and study about Hashem and, and, and the, the divine, the Seder of Stauschlus, the mysteries of creation and, and, and beyond. Why should I spend most of my energy and most of my time engaged in learning and studying things that are completely irrelevant? What practical advantage does that have? How am I accomplishing the purpose of creation? The purpose of my creation, the purpose of Hashem's creation by, by studying and engaging the majority of my time. If not the, it's a landslide, the overwhelming majority of my time about learning things that are not not relevant and practical. So that's what he's going to start addressing now. Why should these laws to, to be studied extensively? And in fact, even more than one studies the order of Tal Shlut, which can rouse one to love and awe of Shem. There is yet another common characteristic shared by all the laws of the positive and the prohibitory commandments, including those that have no practical applications. For, in contradiction, all intellectually generated fear and love experienced by the angels are created ex nihilo. It's using an example. Even the love of an angel, the love of Hashem, that an angel experiences, and the awe of Hashem that an angel experiences, and that's generated by the angels' deep, penetrating understanding and comprehension of Hashem. The Talmud says an angel is a third of this world. In other words, if you took the brains of everyone together in this world, combine them, the brain power of one angel is the equivalent of a third of this world. If you took all the brains of a third of this world together, it's so much more sophisticated. It's so much in a different dimension. It's so much deeper. The physics up there is entirely different than the physics up here. <laughs> they have a whole different understanding of physics, of reality, of truth, you know. So imagine their understanding of Hashem, which generates a feeling of love for Hashem, a feeling of awe of Hashem. And yet all of this is created. It's creation. It's part of creation. Hashem creates something from nothing. Spirituality, as intense as it may be, as spiritual as it may be, don't confuse that with godliness. It's not godly. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Just like earth is a creation, we all understand that earth, physical, the sense of touch, no one is going to confuse that with God. So too, Torah is telling us, don't confuse heaven with God. That's the problem with all the religions and the the mystical movements. They confuse God with spirituality. Spirituality, meditation, religion, philosophy, music, art, sublime, heaven, heavenly, angelic. It's all created. Just like God created the physical. And of course we all understand that God is not physical. God is not spiritual. 
God creates heaven and earth. So the, 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 even your peak experience, higher levels of consciousness, the most expansive love imaginable, pure ecstasy, heavenly music, heavenly love, anything we can describe or experience. These are angels who are not limited to the physical form. No coffee breaks. They don't sleep. They don't eat. All they do is praise God 24-7. And they've been at it for thousands and thousands of years, day in, day out. Their peak experience. It's not God. They don't, know what, they don't know what God looks like. It's a creation. Something from nothing. Which is the, the essence of Judaism. People confuse God with love. God is love. Some religions, God is love. Some religions, God is meditation. God is philosophy. And Judaism recognizes and understands and just like God is not a finger and the greatest fool would never say that God is a finger so God is not love and God is not philosophy and God is not meditation and God is not spirituality and God is not this, uh, the heaven, the heaven of heavens angelic, higher levels of, it's not God, it's a creation just like the finger is a creation the physical, the material so the spiritual and the soul the spiritual is also creation. The angels are created. And therefore, everything that they generate, their comprehension and their understanding and their profound understanding and profound sensitivity and profound love, it's something from nothing. Which means that to Hashem, it's nothing. <laughs> it's nothing. Bupkis is something. <laughs> it's not even Bupkis. Nothing. Nothing. Something from nothing. From Hashem, it's nothing. We're overwhelmed. Imagine. You saw an angel. You'd be overwhelmed. If we experienced uh, thousands of what an angel experienced, we'd be overwhelmed. What an intense spiritual experience. We couldn't handle it. That's why, that's why we don't experience it. We simply couldn't handle it. It would just it would, uh, fry us out. It would just <laughs> burn the wires. It would just... <laughs> too intense. We just can't handle it. We're not equipped. We're not created that way. But even if we were... Overload. Overload, exactly. But even if we were, it would be... It would, it, it's... To us, it would be an earth-shattering experience, an overwhelming experience, an experience we'll never forget once-in-a-lifetime experience. But to Hashem, who's creating all of this, it's a non-event. It's nothing. Nothing happened. Nothing. So we have to remember that. So this helps us understand that the same is true with the soul. Even though He's trying to explain, he's trying to compare the study of the Torah versus the focus and concentrating on your spiritual development, on the soul's love of Hashem, on the soul's sense of awe of Hashem, awareness of Hashem. So why is he just mentioning the angels? Why doesn't he mention also 
the souls. So the Rebbe explains, because he's trying to highlight the point, he's trying to bring out a point, he's trying to emphasize the point. To highlight this point, how anything that's man-made, even if it's spiritual, it's limited. He brings out with the angels. The angels are purely spiritual. And they have this intense insight. And they generate this most powerful, profound love of Hashem, closeness to Hashem, and, and sense of awe of Hashem, and Hashem's presence of Hashem, all based on this awareness of Hashem. From this we can understand the same as with the souls. Although a soul is not like an angel, a soul, as we learned earlier, is godly. The soul, in essence, is godly. We're a piece of the divine essence. So the soul is not just created. The soul is also rooted beyond creation. We were there before creation. God consulted with the Jewish souls. The world's first consultants were the Jews. We didn't even have to print cards. But God consulted with us, with the souls of the Jewish people, before He created the world. That's the reason He created the world. The souls of the Jews were there before creation, transcend creation, because they're a piece of the divine, a piece of godly. And even when the soul is created, the soul remains a piece of the divine, a piece of godliness at its core and essence. And the love and awe of a Jew is also a fulfillment of a commandment. We're commanded in the Torah to love Hashem and to be in awe of Hashem. So it's a mitzvah. It's not just a human activity. We're doing something divine. We're doing a godly activity. We're fulfilling a mitzvah. But nevertheless, he's trying to point out from the angels, you can understand that this, this is a human activity. So the human love, no matter how deep and how sincere and how genuine this love is, how sensitive, it's limited. You are limited. The love and awe that you generate is also limited. It's human. And therefore, how high could it reach? It's limited. It's created. It's not God. It's all based on an existence. There is an I that loves. There is an I that's an awe. So the foundation is that I. There's an I that understands. That I is separate and apart from Hashem. As he said in the Tanya, chapter 35, even the greatest tzaddik, the complete tzaddik, is still separate from Hashem. There's an I that loves Hashem. It's an ecstasy with Hashem. That's nullified to Hashem. <laughs> to be nullified, there has to be an I that's nullified. So there's already a separation, there's already a barrier, there's already a, a glass ceiling that separates us. And therefore, it's, it's created. That love and that awe is created and humanly generated. So it, it's, it's not divine, it's not godly. Versus the Torah. When you learn the Torah, what are you learning exactly? You're learning the divine will, the divine wisdom. Hashem says, in this, in this case, this is what I desire. This is what I want. Hashem decides, pure Impure, kosher, not kosher, guilty, 
not guilty. Permitted, prohibited. Hashem is deciding. It's Hashem's will. It's Hashem's wisdom. So anything that I learn in Torah, anything that I study in Torah, I am directly touching the divine. I am directly touching the Hashem. This is Hashem's will, Hashem's wisdom. It's direct. It's clear. Even though I may, dealing, may be dealing with the most mundane thing. But Hashem is telling me. The landlord is right and the, the tenant is wrong. Or vice versa. <laughs> In this particular case. <laughs> this is Hashem's wish. This is Hashem's will. This is Hashem's decision. So I'm studying Hashem. I'm studying Hashem's mind. I'm studying Hashem's wish, Hashem's will. I'm studying... So it's divine, it's godly. It doesn't matter the subject matter. Anything that I study in Torah, what I'm studying is what the Torah is teaching me and telling me, what does Hashem say about this subject? What does Hashem think about the subject? What does Hashem want in this case? What's the right thing? What's the wrong thing? What's correct and what's not correct? What's, so this is godly. It's direct. I'm touching the divine. It's It's direct. It's totally pure godliness. Unadulterated godliness. Versus love and awe, even the most souped up, the most refined, the most elevated, the most spiritual, the most intense, it remains created. It never escapes, it never leaves the created realm. It's created. God creates the angel, creates the soul, and he creates, that also, ultimately creates that ability and capacity to love and to be in awe and to be aware. But it's all created. Just like God creates the, te- the physical, he creates the spiritual and the energy and the angelic and the soul and the spirit. It's all created. So there's no going beyond that limitation. And that's something from nothing. Which means from Hashem's point of view, it's nothing. So you're comparing? You want to spend your whole day experiencing this love and awe of Hashem? That's what angels do. Angels spend their whole day in ecstasy, love and awe of Hashem, trying to be elevated, trying to rise higher and higher. And they're singing and they're praising and they're trying to go beyond themselves and to cling higher to Hashem. And what does a Jew do? What's a Jew busy with? A Jew is busy with studying Torah. Most of our time most of our day and night is occupied with studying Torah because when you study Torah you have the divine purely unadulterated whatever form and shape it takes it's halacha it's a mishnah it's a gemara but it's God it's Hashem's will what am I learning here? We have an argument amongst Rishonim this way or that way. They're both correct. They're both rooted in Hashem. 
So this is Hashem's wish, Hashem's wisdom, Hashem's decision. What does Hashem say? What does the Torah say? Meaning, what does Hashem say? What does Hashem wish? What's Hashem's way of thinking about this? What's the truth? That is godly. So there's no other activity. There's nothing like the studying of Torah where which you can be so in tune and touching the divine in the most unadulterated way. Because it's revealed, it's openly godly. I'm, what am I learning about? I'm learning what does Hashem think about this subject. No matter how mundane the subject matter is. But what does Hashem think about this? What does Hashem desire? What does Hashem wish? What does Hashem want in this case? What's the right thing or what's the wrong thing? Pure or impure? Kosher or not kosher? And I'm delving into the Torah to figure out, to learn and to study and to find out what does Hashem say? What does Hashem want? That's why a Jew gets so excited about studying Torah. That's why we spend most of our life studying Torah. It consumes most of our energy. And we can't get enough. And the Jew who's 99 years old has been studying Torah since the age of three. Can't get enough. Wakes up for another day, another 18-hour day of study. And learning about things that are completely irrelevant. But what do you mean irrelevant? I'm studying the divine mind. I'm studying Hashem. What Hashem says, what Hashem wants, what's right, wrong, what's correct, not correct, what's true, what's not true, what's God. This is all God. So all the love in the world and all the love of Hashem and the awe of Hashem. I can never reach beyond the world of creation. The only way I can go beyond that is when I study Torah. And I don't have to reach beyond the world of creation. The Torah reaches me. Because the Torah comes down to me. The Torah comes down to my level. The Torah deals with physical, object, physical situations. The animals kosher, not kosher. The landlord is right or wrong. It talks about things that I know about, physical, practical. Landlord, tenant, tenant, partnerships, agriculture, animals. The Torah deals with the physical world, every aspect of the physical world. The Torah comes down to me, it comes down to my level. So this is Hashem coming down to me, coming down to my level. So it's not that I am reaching beyond creation. Hashem was beyond creation, is reaching, coming down to me, is reaching me. God came down the mountain. Mount Sinai, God comes down the mountain. The Torah comes down to us. But Hashem Himself comes down the mountain. This is not creation I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with Hashem Himself. Where Hashem is thinking for Himself. Right, wrong, What's Hashem's wisdom? What's Hashem's will? What's Hashem's wish? So he's going to explain, and we're gonna, we'll, we'll get into it uh, next week. He says, the question is, but isn't everything godly? Hashem creates the whole world. Hashem creates the whole world with His wisdom. Hashem thinks, and the world comes into being. We think and nothing happens. We say, we speak and nothing happens. <laughs> Hashem thinks 
conceives and the world comes into being. So isn't everything godly? Doesn't everything have a godly spark? And yet we're saying that Torah is different. The world is created. Everything in this world is created, including the angels, including the love and fear and awe of the angels and their awareness and all the levels. It's all created. And Torah, however, remains godly, even though the Torah deals with such earthy subjects, such earthy practical subjects, and yet we're saying no, that this is openly divine, openly godly, it's godly, and it's unique. There's nothing like it. So he's, he's explaining why Jews throughout history spent an inordinate amount of time of their day, of their life, a chunk of their life, not the majority of their life, studying Torah. Why so assiduously? Why Torah is so special? And it does, it is a central part of our life. We're people of the book. This is why we've survived for 3,800 years. It's the Torah. So it is an essential part of our life. You know, anyone who says the Hasidim were anti-intellectual, Alter Rebbe is explaining here what's special and what's unique about studying Torah and the importance of scholarship and learning Torah, understanding the Torah and learning it and engaging in it. But in this letter, Alter Rebbe says, points out what's so unique about prayer, what's unique about the mitzvah, and now what's unique about studying Torah. So for a chassid, it wasn't studying Torah to the exclusion of everything else, where prayer became mechanical, and the mitzvot, you know, became something that you just did quickly and got back to the Torah. Whatever a Jew does, if you do 100%, when you're praying, there's nothing greater than prayer. I'm totally present in the prayer. I'm 100% here. Every fiber of my being, every bone in my body. I'm doing a mitzvah. Forget about it. A mitzvah. You know what a mitzvah is? I'm on fire. I'm lighting the Hanukkah candle. I'm on fire. A mitzvah. You're totally present. You do the mitzvah beautifully and totally. You know, special the mitzvah is. There's nothing like a mitzvah. The action, the deed, what matters most. But the same revolution that Hasidus brought to how we pray. It was a fiery prayer, a prayer that's alive, a prayer that's heartfelt, a prayer that's real, a prayer something real is happening, it's an experience. The same chassidus that brought, make, made the mitzvah come alive. The mitzvah is alive, it's done with heart and soul and fire. So chassidus added, the learning is a different learning. Not only learning chassidus is different, learning gemara is different, learning halacha is different. You approach it with with awe, with this is Hashem, this is divine, this is godly. You learn with such relish and with integrity and honesty. Because if it's godly, it's not a plaything. It's not a canvas for me to show how brilliant I am. You realize this is Hashem's will, it's Hashem's wish. 
You're shaking, the Talmud says. When you learn Torah, just like when the Jews received Torah at Sinai, they were trembling. You have to learn Torah, you have to tremble, because you're learning with Hashem. Hashem is sitting, Yochavrus is sitting right opposite you. And Hashem is teaching you. And you're learning about the truth. What does Hashem say? So it's not my place to come and put in my crooked ideas and to forcefully, and just to show off and to show how brilliant I am. You learn Torah with tremendous humility. You're trembling. This is Hashem I'm dealing with. Hashem's will. Hashem's infinite wisdom. I better get this right. I can't distort. I have to get this straight. What does Hashem really say? What does the Torah really say? What does Rashi really say? What's my is really saying? What, what's really going on? What's Hashem really saying here? So you approach it with honesty, with integrity. And the learning of Torah is refined. There's no ego involved. It's refined. It's humble. It's deep. It's honest. It's, it's real. It's a different type of learning. So just like Hasidus revolutionized how we pray, revolutionized how we do a mitzvah, and it revolutionized our entire life because you sense Hashem is with you every step of the way. Hashem can't spell everything out, but there's the way Hashem wants us to act 24-7. Every step of our life, the question is, what the, how does Hashem want me to act right now? Which a chassid asks himself all the time. What would Hashem want from me at this moment? What's the right thing? I have two good things. They're both kosher. They're both permitted. But what does Hashem want? If this choice and that choice, you're constantly asking yourself that question. In all your ways, you know Hashem. Which means... That you're constantly thinking about Hashem. This is what Hashem wants every moment. Hashem is creating me every moment. Every moment, there's the right answer and there's the wrong answer. There's the answer that Hashem really wants and then there's the wrong answer. So you're constantly on edge. You're constantly edgy and asking yourself, what's the emiss? What does Hashem want? So the same Hasidus who gave a fire and a life in prayer and gave a fire and a life in doing a mitzvah, gave a fire and a life, how we go about our life 24-7, even when we're not praying. And even the simple Jew is going about his life, how he's connecting with Hashem. All times. Lit a fire in the studying of Torah. It's a different studying of Torah. It's illuminated. It's genuine. It's uplifting, inspiring. It's deep. It's honest. It's humbling. And real. When you understand the preciousness of studying Torah, it lights a fire and motivates you to spend hours and hours of your time delving in depth into all parts of the Torah. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.